Good day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic pre-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. They'd be incredibly grateful if you pop, pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Um, other reviews can give to different podcasts, um, so that that's fine. We really appreciate if you really could take a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review, because what happens is that gives that uh, allows us greater accessibility. Uh, to get this information out to the people who are interested in listening to it, so uh, so today joining Brian and myself, uh, we're back in this in the studio uh, is Barbara Glaiman, and uh, who's one of our senior lecturers in internal medicine. Thank you very much, Barbara, for finally agreeing to come into the studio and uh, and talk to us. Thank you for inviting me, Dom. <laughs> My pleasure. My pleasure. So, uh, so what I thought we'd, we'd talk about would be um, uh, immune-mediated hemolytic anemia because I know it's a, a big passion of yours, and uh, and something that we we see sort of quite a, a lot of in, in the in the hospital. And I, and I assume do you, do you wonder why we see a lot of that in in the hospital? Um, why do we see a lot in our hospital? I think um, it's a good question, I think, because we are a referral centre and we have the um, possibility of um, giving blood to the um, to those patients. So we have a blood donation um, service. Um, so that's probably playing a big role. We have more maybe advanced therapeutic options available for those patients, for those patients that maybe not responding as we expect to initial treatments. Um, so I think we are not seeing necessarily the... The normal IMHA cases, um, I think their IMHA is probably even more common in general practice, but I think um, we do know that probably up to 80% do respond quite nicely initially, but then we see maybe more the refractory um, cases in our hospital. I suppose I've often thought about that, that we do see some skewed uh, diseases, don't we? Or the, or the 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 harder to maybe treat, diagnose, or as you said, maybe they're just the ones that we see need need blood, or that's why they're 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 sent to us. Yes. Absolutely. So so uh, so maybe before we get ahead of ourselves, if I if I said to you, um, what is immune-mediated hemolytic anemia? Do you have like a, a a picture in your mind of certain criteria that you must sort of uh, have a checkbox before you say that it, that is it, or? Yeah, certainly I do. Um, I guess, first of all, the patient needs to be anemic. Um, yep. So that's a good start. Um, then I need to be convinced that it is um, hemolytic. Um, so that I've ruled out any other forms of anemia or um, destruction. Um, and then if you if you say that I have um, an hemolytic process, then of course I need to make the decision if this patient is um, destroying um, via his immune system. So I have immune-mediated destruction. Um, what kind of criteria do I use for that? Um, I guess I'm, I'm so for hemolysis, I look is this patient um, enteric and does it have high bilirubin in his blood? Um, or uh, does it show hemoglobinemia, hemoglobinuria, things like that? Um, and then for more um, getting to this to the point that I say it's most likely immunated. Do I have a signs of that? Do I have, for example, a patient that is agglutinating? So his uh, erythrocytes are agglutinating because of antibodies um, covering the surface. So I'm doing insane and agglutination tests. Um, if those are negative, I may follow them up with um, Coombs tests to see can I detect those antibodies on the on the uh, surface of the erythrocytes. Um, and, and also blood smear elevation, of course, is very, very important as patients do I have evidence, do I have thiocytes, for example, or do I see signs of intravascular hemolysis like ghost cells? Okay, so with the uh, the sort of test that you, you, you sort of touched upon there, so the insulin agglutination um, or the Coombs test, so if you're insulin agglutinating positive or you think that that 
that is what's going on. Um, I suppose probably what we should say is, you know, a, you drop a, a bit of saline and a, and a, a, a bit of blood uh, on a smear and see if it if it clumps, and then probably have a look at that under a microscope if you're unsure whether that clumping is is real or not. Um, yes, it's probably a bit more sophisticated than that, or it should be a bit more sophisticated than that, because I guess we do need to rule out, rule out that this is not like a rule of formation, for example. So what we usually do say is that we... Um, so some people do say that they wash the red blood cells before they do this. Other people say they just dilute the, the drop of blood um, a lot to get the same same idea. Um, and then it's always important, yes, yeah, we do look microscopically first, do we see... Um, um, flecking or not, um, but then it's always important to microscopically um, prove that. And and there's also very tricky sometimes um, if you're not um, very trained on that and don't have the practice, you may still um, mistake um, rule formation for for agglutination. That's so quite important. And also then some dogs are very very severely agglutinating. It's a straightforward thing to, to say, but some are only weakly agglutinating, and that might be not something that everyone picks up without any practice. Yeah. I think it's a bit harder when they're actually really anemic because there's so little blood. If you dilute that, it, it almost looks like grains of sand, and, Absolutely, and then, yeah. you, then you're trying to have a look under a microscope to, to see it, it to see it agglutinating. Yeah. But some of the ones you're right, it looks like clumps already and, and quite frightening uh, exactly so so sometimes we see dogs that are so severely agglutinating you can't even get the blood out of the dog into the eta tube and it's already clumped together yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. and so if you if you're happy if you've got a positive uh, agglutination test do you, do you do a coombs test or when when do you think it's yeah. useful for you to, to do so, a coombs test and maybe what is it yeah. Say again? Maybe what is the Coombs test? So the Coombs test, I guess, um, so the Coombs test will um, detect, um, so we will use antibodies against antibodies on the red blood cells. So we will be able to detect those. Um, it's kind of um, based on luxination um, as well. And the idea as well um, with the Coombs test is with a Coombs test that we could maybe even um, differentiate what kind of antibody, antibodies um, are involved. Um um, to come back to your original question, I think um, if I'm if I'm certain my patient is agglutinating and I I, I trust that result, um, I out of pragmatic reason I would not necessarily follow up that with a Coombs test because I have I have my answer because if if a patient is truly agglutinating in my insulin agglutination test, the Coombs test should be positive as well. Um, um, if a patient is not agglutinating and it becomes more interesting, then I um, so then one of the criteria to say it's immune-mediated is missing. Um, again, um, we do see those cases, not everyone, and um, I guess we we um, we hope to see those cases because they are um, often um, better to treat, better to control. Um, but then the next thing, um, can I see reliable spherocytosis? And again, um, that comes back to the person who does it as well because it's probably. A, Big different other topic is blood smear relation is so important in those patients, um, but you really need a trained eye as well, and you need to know where you're looking for spherocytes because it can make your blood smear of every normal dog, and can you can find spherocytes if you look at the at the wrong area of the blood smear. Um, so if I have a patient where I see um, it is hemolytic hyperbilirubinemia, I have spherocytosis on the blood smear, um, it's not agglutinating. I may not even do a Coombs test. I can, but but I probably would already feel quite comfortable that um, it is immune-mediated. 
I absolutely agree that uh, having a look at the blood smear is, is so so important. But I remember, um, or not remember, but occasionally, every now and again, it can the blood smear can look so abnormal. It's hard to know like what is a normal red blood cell, and I suppose that's where it's always useful to send off to a clinical pathologist because um, if you're unsure what is what is normal, then yeah. then it gets no, harder. Absolutely, and that's what I would say with these uh, these cases, especially. I think it's always important to maybe uh, or to. I was, would say in, all, in, in every case to send it off to your clinical pathologist. If you have to send it off overnight, always um, involve like fresh blood smear made it in the practice. And that's, again, um, if they're severely anemic, it's very difficult to make a blood, good blood smear as well. So that's something as well that need practicing as well, because without a good quality blood smear, even a good clinical pathologist can't really look or give you a good report. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, if you're if you're sort of happy that you you have a uh, um, a diagnosis of immune-mediated hemolytic anemia, do you do you again have certain things that you will um, do with every case, such as sort of screen for infectious disease or look for an infectious or inflammatory cause yeah. as a, as an indicator, or or does it depend? Yeah. So, I personally. Um do it um, in the sense of that I would look for major things that um, could possibly trigger an immune-mediated process. So I probably would do some um, imaging screening of thorax and abdomen. Um, I probably would also do um, urinalysis, full urinalysis, uh, including a urine culture. Um, other infectious diseases um, will be depending on travel history of the patient um, and also location within the UK. And do, do you think we're seeing more positive infectious disease? I know this is just sort of anecdotal, obviously, but do you think because we're looking, we're seeing more than there could be triggers, or or do you think we're still the the you know the prevalence or incidence is is uh, pretty low? I think we still I I think we see more than ten years ago, but not because we're looking more, because we looked the same to the same degree ten years ago. But I think it has very more something to do with travel scheme and not having a travel scheme anymore and um, maybe the climate changes. Okay, that's that's, uh, that's quite interesting. So, and if you if you identify something, so I know that we can um, so, so send off an infectious panel quite quickly. Like, would that stop you looking elsewhere? So, if you identify something, so say if you think that a patient has pancreatitis and you maybe ultrasound it and that mm. confirms because of the clinical signs and that, yeah. would you would you stop or do you still look for for other other things? Um, so that's a very difficult to, like situation. I think it probably comes down to the patient because I guess so the described scenario to say is um, I guess a lot of patients come in um, so severely anemic and they have GI signs and there's always a question if they are so hypoxic. Of course, they will have some GI signs because they are not only hypoxic in the bone marrow in the liver; they are also hypoxic in their GI tract. Um, and in the pancreas. And then there's always a question, yeah, we, we have, some people do routinely CPL, CPLs in these dogs and they may come back um, um, positive, but does this dog really have primary pancreatitis or did the pancreas become hypoxic and you have a release of um, pancreatic lipase and um, immunoreactive activity? So, so, so in that specific scenario, I would not necessarily believe that the pancreatitis is the initial trigger for, for the IMHA, if that makes sense. I would more think that probably what we see, um, the GI clinical symptoms um, and the ultrasonographic findings are maybe a consequence of the, of the anemia. 
And so the majority of cases really don't, don't identify an underlying trigger, so we assume it, it's sort of primary. Absolutely. So I think probably the, the majority of cases we do see is primary, um, and that's very then difficult to, to, to justify maybe also all these investigations to owners, um, especially if you have a four-year, like a young or middle-aged Cocker Spaniel which is predisposed to the disease and otherwise very happy and healthy, um, do you think it's likely to find something? And then it's always the discussion, yes, but we did did find something in the past or we did see cases with severe pyelonephritis and then um, getting into an IMHA and we treated the pyelonephritis and the IMHA went away. But again, these those are probably single case reports and how much are you relying on those? So do, do you think, well, maybe we can talk about the future in a, in a later date, but do you think maybe creating, uh, you know, might be a goal to create a database of all these IMHA cases to work out where certain uh, tests might be more more appropriate? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so um, is there ever a time when you want to have a look at a, the bone marrow of, of, a, of a patient? Um, so so the typical IMHA case um, um, which we see, I think, is usually a highly regenerative patient with not necessarily other um, cytopenias. I guess we do see um, the IMHA case that comes in neutropenic, but we have we know that this is kind of part of the disease process as well. So uh, in the majority of cases, we do not really have an indication to look at the bone marrow. Um, so therefore, no, the answer is no. Um, there is a subgroup I'm not sure if you should call it a subgroup of IMHA, but there are, of course, cases where we have patients presented with non-regenerative, severe non-regenerative anemia, where we do all investigations, we do look at the bone marrow, and the final diagnosis is that we think it's an immune-mediated destruction of the precursors. But again, it is a different category of patients, and um, there's a big debate now, and there's research going on to say um, how should we classify those cases. Um, so yeah. maybe it's so like a separate disease exactly process. separate disease it is seems to be immune media but we should separate it probably from our typical regenerative IMHA case yeah okay and uh, and, and you say a, a good point as well that maybe we see the the sicker cases that come in or maybe they're more affected with the anemia and because of the blood donor program that we have that maybe we, that's why um, we get sent those cases as as referrals but would you would you um, start treatment for them any any differently, like with any um, immune-mediated hemolytic anemia. I suppose that the cornerstone of the treatment is, is uh, immunosuppressive drugs. So, do you, do you treat them any differently, whether they're severe or or um, not as severe, or or just yeah? <laughs> yes. So so um, yes and no. So it is um, because again. It, even though we um, IMHA is quite a common disease, or is maybe uh, the most common autoimmune disease, um, maybe not common, common in the sense of like if you think about hypothyroid cats, but it's a, the most common autoimmune disease we, we see in dogs. Um, um, there's still no consensus on how really effectively treat those patients. Um, I guess definitely everyone agrees on their need immunosuppression, and um, and the the first drug of choice would be glucocorticoids. Um, but then. The discussion goes on, is glucocorticoids sufficient for which case is sufficient and um, should we add the second drug? And and there are different reasons to add a second drug. Um, one would be definitely if, if the patient is um, severely affected, but then uh, we need to discuss what does that mean? So what are criteria for saying this is a more severely affected patient than someone else? Um, 
But then the other reason to maybe add a second drug, even in a dog that is not so severely affected, is um, the severe side effects we see um, with glucocorticoid treatments, especially at the doses we need them. And um, if you look at the literature, there's surprisingly very limited information on side effects of glucocorticoids, um, but everyone knows that they are there and everyone probably also has experienced the situation where um, a patient received high dose of steroids and the owner just gave up because they couldn't deal with the with the side effects so and i'm i'm more kind of leaning towards the category that i say i rather add a second drug very early on independently on how severely the patient is affected so that i can get the, the dog off the glucocort or it's quicker so that i kind of can limit the adverse effects yeah, too, I, uh, I remember speaking to a colleague about this, and, and definitely seen this bef- before, particularly with. Um, well, I'm not. I'm not sure sure why, but maybe with uh, bigger dogs that are on glucocorticoids or on on steroids, and that maybe we, maybe the smaller dogs or bigger dogs are equally effective, but we just see the clinical signs in bigger dogs um, um, more significantly because I suppose they are larger, so the muscle mass mm. is more significant mm. than it might be on a on a small fluffy dog, and and I think that that. that it, it, I definitely have had owners come back and really concerned because of the panting, the weight loss, the, yeah. uh, the, the seemingly, you know, not finding a comfortable position or anything yeah. like that. I think it's an inter- um, interesting thought, and I don't know the answer, but I guess it, it makes a difference if the Great Dane is peeing in your house or the little duck sound, definitely. So, um yeah. Of, of what patient, what what owners can can manage like, yeah. for for yeah. sure. But I think I, I completely agree. I, like I suppose we're all kind of under the same roof in a, in in a in a way, and and all of us sort of add a, a add a second second line. And I suppose mm. that all these sort of second line drugs, though, are that they're, they're not um, or they're, well, they're not licensed in this country, but um, they all have. Uh, I suppose that what do they have a, a different? Do you think it's personal preference, or do you think it's just uh, cost, or? what people are, are, are used to um probably a combination of things or because if you're honest um currently i guess um we are really lacking prospective studies to show us which of the second drugs would be um prior or superior to any other drug um, um we have retrospective studies who um try maybe to to incline something or say something that that drug is better than the other but but if you look at those studies more closely then um it's always difficult to either compare historical um, control group um, anyway than then, um, s- some studies have maybe compared prednisolone versus prednisolone and the second drug um, retrospectively and then ca- came out with that um, the one who got the second drug were doing better but then the question also is um, did they do better because they made it to discharge and therefore they got the second drug um if that makes sense so it's more like a marker of survival rather than a marker of yeah it's doing something um so it's very difficult and, and we are lacking these prospective studies so so i think coming back to the choice of a second drug it is then probably coming back to what is available um what is um feasible financially as well and um, what is maybe also feasible um for monitoring purposes because um they all have their own maybe disadvantages regarding um, um, adverse effects. Yeah. So, so the, the the three main drugs that you were doing are azathioprine, mycophenolate, and and cyclosporin. Yes. And I suppose that the 
there are different costs and probably like in different countries as well are, are associated with that um and so and so do you normally regardless of what second line mm. drug you go on is the idea that that will those those drugs will be on beyond the duration of the glucocorticoids yes so that is that would be my my approach which i think probably um 80 of the profession would agree to as well but um there's always a discussion as well if you do add a second drug and you think that um the second drug is causing adverse effects or like more more side effects should you taper that first and i i do know of colleagues who have have been considering that um there's no really evidence to support that in the sense that we do not really know that the side effects associated with these second drugs these three um are necessarily dose related um so therefore yeah my approach is uh, so glucocorticoids we're adding a second drug um um, for steroid sparing effects, or if you have a severe case for help in the, in that sense, and then be trying to get off the glucocorticoids first, and then be be um, seize or like taper or stop the second drug. So it's another very grey area. What do you do with that? Well, I, I thought I'd maybe touch on a, another little grey area. And as far as like mm-hmm. a immunosuppressive sort of doses of steroids, you, do you have a, a in your mind somewhere between two to four mg per kg, or is that? Um, depending on the, the the patient or do you again think this is a bit of a contentious area yeah. it might be a contentious area not for me anymore necessarily because i probably have learned my lessons um so i i would suggest um anything between two and three milligram per kilogram um whereas would um stick to lower dosages with bigger dogs um um, probably would even consider um, milligram per kilogram dosing, so maybe 40 to 60 milligram per kilogram, sorry, milligram per square meter dosing um, in dogs bigger than 25 kilograms. Um, and I also then always enforce or reiterate that if we do start uh, the patient on more than 2 milligram per kilogram on a daily dose, um, that we should reduce this uh, within the first one to two weeks. So I wouldn't want to have a patient on 3 milligrams for more than longer than two weeks. And do you, do you wait or do you change it uh, once they start to show a response or do you change it when they are around normal? If that makes sense. So, yeah. so I suppose if their PCV starts to increase, is that when you change the dose, or do you want the yeah. do you want the uh, do you want it to be more around sort of thirty five? You know, approaching yeah. Yeah. So so definitely, I'm definitely not waiting until they're in the normal range because we also do or empirically we have, we can see that that patients on a very high dose of steroids at some point it is a bit suppressive to the bone marrow. So when you see these patients, they are hovering around 28, 30%. Um, they're still on a very high dose of steroids because no one thought about reducing them. And, and then there's a complaint that they're not going up. What do we do? And then you just half the dose suddenly and, and they shoot up to 38, 40. Um, so, so if I initially started to, uh, on two to three milligrams per kilograms, um, so if I, above two, I probably after two weeks will drop it. Um, Assuming the patient is at least stable and shows a response, um, and that's the question: What are you then defining as stable? And that it probably comes down to the individual patient. So, a patient that was very transfusion dependent initially suddenly is not transfusion dependent again and starts coming up as this PCV. I probably would be happy to drop it from three to two mg per kg because even two mg per kg is still a quite high dose. Um, and then I. I want to see um, every two to three weeks. I want to see at least a PCV and total protein to see that the pay, that this, the the PCV goes up at least above thirty and stays there and is stable. Yeah. 
And as far as a, a response goes, as, as well, as in, in, in my mind, I have uh, 10 days, and I don't know why that's probably mm. from the people that, that taught me that, that sort of said that, to, to hold on tight mm. and be patient. Do you have a, a time period where you where you think you should see a response? Because I mm-hmm. imagine the, the temptation is mm. that if you are if you haven't seen these diseases before and you How give long? them steroids for two yeah. days and you go, oh, it hasn't responded, let's throw something else, let's throw something yeah. else, let's yeah. throw something else. Yeah. Um, so it's a very good question because um, I guess we, we recently tried to review the literature for this and um, there is, there's no evidence and if you, if you look at papers who try to come up as a criteria for that um, to make a decision when do we need to start the second they are all pick randomly numbers but I think the conclusion is um, that you probably would give them a chance for 7 to 10 days So that seems sort of fair like to, to just sit on your hands for a bit and just Absolutely. let the steroids uh, work Exactly, so 7 to 10 days and during those 7 to 10 days um, they might need blood transfusion, of course you probably are more twitchy to give a second drug or something else if you have someone who chooses to your blood transfusion within 24 hours and keeps doing that so then you probably after the third or fourth day you're already um, reaching for something um, but if they are, if you give them a blood transfusion, or some of those dogs don't even need a blood transfusion, but you give them steroids and they're kind of hovering around their PCB of 16 and they're stable, um, then you can give them seven to ten days time. And uh, and how about I suppose we should probably touch on anticoagulants as well. So do you give them any any uh, any medication sort of for, for uh, the risk of thromboembolism? Yes, definitely. So. Um, so we do know, I guess there's enough strong evidence to say that anti, uh, like that trombo- thromboembolic disease is a major uh, mortality factor in those patients. Um, and therefore the answer is, the first straight answer is yes, we will give them something. Um, what to give is much more tricky. Um, and I know that some smart guys are thinking about that and will come out with some guidelines on that um, because... Um, the type of thrombotic disease they they show is more like a venous thrombotic disease. So I guess we empirically we, we used to give them antiplatelet therapy. That might be not the most um, appropriate thing to do, or it is probably appropriate, but maybe not the most effective therapy. Um, but that's what we have available at the moment. Um, also, with I guess what we can monitor or not monitor. So I would definitely. Um, um, use antiplatelet therapy in these patients, um, and especially in um, after the initial diagnosis or so in the initial phase of disease, it's very very important because we know that the risk is very high in the first few weeks. I think there's probably definitely more to come out of that, but mm-hmm. I think as you as you uh, touch on it, I think part of it is not only the the drugs that we use, but also how do we monitor how effective they are? Because there's definitely may, maybe some <clears throat> evidence that needs to be built up over time, but maybe it's the the monitoring thing. Maybe yeah. maybe that any drug can be fine as long as it's monitored appropriately. Probably, yeah. We'll yeah. see. Hey? We One will day. see exactly. One day <laughs> we're not going there. We're not going there. No, no, far, far too complicated. <laughs> um, and so when you go go through the process, so so when you start to to sort of reduce uh, um, the dose of steroids down and you see a response is it sort of more of a, a, a gradual thing over like three to six months or do you or do you try and sort of make sure at a regular factor that the pcv is remaining at that at that level um and i suppose yeah maybe <laughs> yeah so we probably so i would probably say that um so that we would um drop drop the dose of glucocorticoids by 25% every three weeks if you only use glucocorticoids. If you have a second drug on board um, for steroid sparing effects, then the idea would be to 
drop it quicker. Now either we do that by um, dropping it f like um, the amount we are dropping it to increase that or um, we decrease the time intervals in between. So either we go to a um, decrease from between 25 to 33% every two to three weeks, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, what do you, and so the idea is to be sort of drug free. And do, do, we, do we know how many patients will have a a flare-up or a uh, recrudescence of, of this disease? I think um, we do not really have. The estimate is maybe around 10-20%, um, but we do not really have those numbers. And what we also do not have is, um, or what we know is that there's no predicting factor to say when they would relapse. So I think, of course, we see um, everyone sees these patients who relapse while they're on drugs, um, and they may need um, long-term, long-life um, um, drugs. Um, but there are um, patients who you, um, where you stop all medication, and then they relapse and that is not known so we would not recommend for example if, if the patient has been now the last four or five months on immunosuppressive drugs we stopped it we would not recommend an um, regular hematologies for example i probably would recommend another one four weeks after the last drug was given just to say that he stayed in remission then uh, but from that point um, no one could predict if this dog will relapse or when it will relapse so it's not worth saying okay we need to see him back now every eight weeks to to reassess do you ever come across some owners who might be um, drug dependent for their dogs and think that because that held this disease at bay they want to continue that um, some do, yeah, um, and it's quite difficult because you kind of try to get across that even though these drugs do wonder with this disease, they're not benign drugs either. Um, but yeah, that is sometimes a problem. Probably happens. Yeah. And where, where do you think the uh, <clears throat> what what questions would you like answered for uh, dealing with immune mediated hematitic anemia? So what what questions do you think you would like answered, but also what do you think we're likely to answer in the in the in the short to immediate future? Um <laughs> I think um it would be good to have um to have some some evidence laid down what would be the most appropriate treatment for which patient. Um and um I guess the discussion is always like one patient is not like the other patient. So can we identify more factors that help us not only identifying um, who is more severely affected, but also it will identify us, help us identify which patient will respond to which therapy better. Um, um, but the first step probably would be to, to have some guidelines on how should we treat them. So that's because I guess at the moment everyone does it um, a little bit, maybe how they were taught, um, what experience they have. Um, and to bring this all together maybe um, would be helpful reviewing literature um, and then to say, okay, this is the evidence we have so far. Um, let's let's advise that's what we should do and then plan prospective studies, which probably need to be multi-centred um, to really have an impact. Do you, do you get the feeling that we <clears throat> see a similar sort of disease uh, a patient population with this disease that colleagues do throughout the world or uh, no i don't think so because i guess i have been practicing in in germany and switzerland as well i guess there we of course see much more infectious diseases as well so we saw much less primary immune mediated diseases um but also if you look at the literature was what it is what is published um from maybe central europe um on primary imha those populations who do really really well on glucocorticoid therapy um that is being tapered off very quickly compared to what we are used to. Um, 
that must be a different population of dogs. Um, so, of course, you can argue that maybe that um, the centers, these studies come out, they may see the cases we don't see necessarily here because they're already um, treated in, in general practice um, because they're responding so well. Um, but that's definitely not the population we see. So we see more population that is much more severely affected. Um, we have to treat them straight away with glucocorticoids, a second drug, and then we still consider other salvage therapeutic options like um, giving them human IV globulins or doing plasmapheresis, things like that. So I think we do see the different population in different parts of the world. So I was, just, I was just thinking as you were saying that about uh, adding different immunosuppressive drugs, but we... we uh, I suppose both agree with that we're talking about just adding one. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so I'm really a strong, 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 you say, advocate yep. not to use three immunosuppressive drugs at the same time. Please not. It seems to be like a, a veterinary habit, doesn't it? I suppose if one antibiotic will do fine, then four would be better. But yeah. uh, but yes, immunosuppressives, that, uh, that can be uh, yeah. lead to serious issues. Absolutely. And I think this is always um, something to consider as well. Um, if we... If you can't control it with two immunosuppressive drugs, then we need to think of um, other factors. So are we giving the right dose? Are they absorbing those drugs? Um, are they doing the job? So, so then we, And are we, do we have the right diagnosis as well? So I guess we need to be critical. Yeah. And, and just, uh, just finally, before I, I let you go, do you think that uh, any of the therapy in treating these dogs like, re relies on any other like medications? Who, I suppose, do, do you think... Do you find them generally nauseous, or do we give them um, other other medications to help them, or does it is it really sort of specific on the on the patient? And I suppose again, like we we see this, we tend to see the sicker ones because the of those ones, things, yeah. so they might not necessarily require that yeah. in general practice. Yeah, so they may not necessarily require that. So I'm not an advocate to say they're only gastroprotectants um, medication, for example. But I guess the ones we see are usually very severely hypoxic and they, they look nausea. And then I do consider giving them um, a proton inhibitor, for example, at least for the initial phase. Um, but nothing they need long term in this sense. And then it comes down really to the to the individual patients. I guess sometimes we do see patients that have maybe abdominal pain. Could that be hypoxia to the pancreas and things like that so do they need maybe some pain relief initially so it comes really down to the individual patient but there's nothing really they need um need as a standard other than their antitrombotic therapy and their immunosuppression but for example no antibiotics or anything yeah <clears throat> even if they can be severely um neutrophilic yeah, yeah, absolutely. I suppose unless unless we identify that a UTI, it, exactly, as we said, or, or an yeah. infectious uh, yeah. infectious disease. Um, is there anything else do you think that we've uh, missed out in uh, our uh, our discussion? Um, I guess I I would recommend. I guess we 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 talked about how do we taper them, but I guess mm. we always, of course, it's probably um, clear to everyone. But we always need to make sure that they are still stable. So we need to do a PCV total protein um, as a minimum. Um, I would recommend to do hematology biochemistries. Um, intermittently as well or hematology probably if affordable every time would be helpful because you get some more information as well so if there's still um, a significant regeneration there um, is there maybe still um, agglutination, thyrocytosis um, which would be all maybe factors that make you a bit more more careful um, then depending on the second drug I guess you need to monitor for adverse effects especially with azacyoprene for example which I personally like to use but, but we do know that some patients show hepatotoxicity and that can be subclinical so you would not necessarily um, pick that up early enough um, if you wouldn't do biochemistry so there I, I would suggest 
for example, to buy chemistry within the first four weeks because that's when it usually happens. But things like that is still something we haven't touched, but I think we can't really talk about everything. <laughs> but I think that's a great point about like re- reassessing. It's not just the PCV that we're concerned about because you can still have active destruction going on and, and, uh, and the PCV can be really increasing. Exactly, so, yeah. so it's good to have a look to make sure there's not still a lot of spherocytosis or, mm-hmm. or ghost cells. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, no. That's, a, that's a great point. But yeah, I think I think we could talk about the dose of steroids for, for at least a couple of hours and mm-hmm. probably still get, uh, get nowhere. But, um, uh, but thank you very much for your time today, yeah, you're welcome. So we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. Many thanks for, for for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device, and that way you won't even worry about missing a podcast. If you leave us a review, um, that would be great. And we'll place any show notes on the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast in your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield@rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye bye.